Thanks, Sal. Um, so our series um, is on Hebrews and uh, the title is Greater Than. And so um, Lily read this morning from Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. You're welcome to have that open um, if you like, but I'll be uh, bringing up sections of it on the PowerPoint here. When I say heaven, I wonder what comes to mind. When we have an image of heaven, this might be what comes to mind. It certainly was when I googled it and uh, this was the very first image. But the writer doesn't say heaven. The writer starts off by saying this. Can I have the next? Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. And when I googled heavenly calling, the next one, I got a few pictures that looked like this. Now, I don't know what you see when you see that picture, but it certainly indicates for me that there's some sort of a journey. We're not actually at the destination yet. We haven't arrived at the destination. There's something that has to go beforehand before we get there. And there's a lot about this picture that's probably wrong in terms of understanding what a heavenly calling is. And you might be able to think of some of them, and I hope as we go through this sermon, you'll be able to think of more and more. But the one aspect that I want us to focus on in this picture is the fact that we are not there yet. We have not arrived at our destination. And it seems that the Hebrews, um, to which this um, letter was written, had become sort of uncomfortable in their life and they thought that they should have already arrived at their destination. And because of that, they start to give up on Christ. They start to give up on the heavenly calling that they have. So how does the author go about confronting this situation? Well, he goes about confronting it with the Old Testament character of Moses. And he starts to describe Moses as someone who was faithful. And for the, purpose, the purposes of the um, text initially, Moses and Jesus are compared as being alike. Later on in the passage, we've actually got Jesus as greater than Moses. But initially they're being compared because the Hebrews have this idea in their head that Moses was so fantastic, he was such a faithful servant, that let's turn back to him. And it's not until later that it's contrasted. And so in... Um, Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. And we'll deal with each of these two terms in turn, but it's important to note that both the apostle and high priest were terms that have been used of Moses. So in the initial instance, Jesus is being brought up to be on the same level as Moses. We're going to look at the second one first. We're going to look at the office of the high priest. Now, many of you know that Moses wasn't actually a high priest, was he? It was Aaron that was the high priest. But regardless of that, Moses was the person who instituted the high priesthood. He was the one that started the whole sacrificial system. He was God's mouthpiece in order for that to happen. And you might remember when we looked at Leviticus... You remember the sacrificial system and you might remember I talked about the fat that was being burnt up. And when that fat was burnt up, it went up to God as a pleasing aroma to God. And I said that because of that sacrifice, we are a pleasing aroma to God. And Moses, as the person who instituted this, 
He is representing man before God and man, because of this sacrificial system, is able to be a pleasing aroma to God. So Moses' ministry was representing man to God and at this stage, Jesus being compared to this is a wonderful thing. It's saying Jesus is at least as good as this. Jesus is able to represent you before God. But it also says that Moses, um, it says he was faithful, this is Jesus, to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. It's really hard for us to jump back into Hebrews and understand what the name Moses means. But it means everything to these Hebrew people. Moses represents the whole of the law. He represents the whole of the Levitical system. But the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Moses sort of represents all of that. So he's this huge figure in history. But he was a faithful figure. He was a faithful servant in the way that he went about things. And I want to recount just one story from the Old Testament that shows us how Moses was faithful in all that he did. And the story is in Exodus 33. And Moses is commissioned with the task of delivering the people into the promised land. You might know more of the story and you might know that Moses actually in the end wasn't the person that brought them into the promised land. There's heaps of reasons why that was the case. But I reckon there's a really important theological reason. And that reason is Moses represents the law. If Moses represents the law, then the law is incapable of bringing us into the promised land. The person that took over from Moses was Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. Joshua was the person who was able to deliver the people into the promised land. The law was incapable of doing that. But regardless of whether Moses actually went into the promised land with the people or not, he was still initially commissioned with the task of um, setting up and, and making sure that the people were going there. And he was God's mouthpiece and God um, says to the people, you need to go into the promised land but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you along the way. Now, the term stiff-necked um, comes from, uh, it, it's found right throughout the Bible, but um, it comes from um, a ploughman and, uh, sorry, ploughing the fields and he had his oxen there. And this is what's called an ox goad. And the ox goad was used by the ploughman to poke the oxen in the hind legs if he wanted to speed them up or to poke them in the neck if they started to drift off and he needed to straighten them up. So when someone is described as stiff-necked, it is saying that even when they're poked with an ox goad, they're not willing to straighten up. They have the inability to be guided by their master. And so when God calls the Israelites stiff-necked, he's saying, you have the inability to be guided by me. You're refusing to be guided. You keep going off in your own direction. But what is striking in this passage is the fact that God will not go with them. Imagine being told that you're going to do a really, really significant, important thing and it's going to be really hard, like going into a promised land where there's all these giants around and you've got to wipe them all out and settle in the land. But then being told, oh, and another thing, I will not be with you. Well, that's not how the story's supposed to go, is it? 
God is supposed to be with us. Aren't we told as Christians, we can do mighty things, we can do the impossible because God's presence is with us. And the reaction of the people to this is they started to mourn. But their mourning did nothing to change God's mind. Instead, through Moses, God came again and said, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, I would probably destroy you along the way. And it is at this point that Moses shows his faithfulness. You see, Moses was an intercessor. He took the people's prayers and petitions before God and he was described as being a friend of God. The Bible describes he and God as speaking mouth to mouth, which we don't actually translate that idiom uh, mouth to mouth. We translate it face to face, probably because we find mouth to mouth just a little bit creepy. But when Moses intercedes for the people, He intercedes and God says to him, yes, I am pleased with you, Moses, and I will be with you, but God still says I will not be with the people because I might consume them. And again, Moses goes back to God. This isn't good enough for Moses. He remains faithful to his role as an intercessor and he says this to God. The people in the land will not be able to know you unless you distinguish them through the graciousness of your presence. See, Moses knew God's plan for all of Israel. He knew that from the very beginning, Israel was to be a chosen nation that went out to the ends of the earth and showed God's name. They were to bear God's name. They were to tell everyone about who God was. And so this pulls at God's heartstrings. And God realises, yes, I need to have my presence here with the people so that other people um, will know who God is. So in God's response, he says, yes, I will do, Moses, what you have asked, but not because of the sake of the people, because the people are stiff-necked. They refuse to go where I lead them. But for your sake, Moses, I will have my presence with these people. And what does this mean for us? Well, sometimes we go through life wondering whether God's presence is with us. But we can be confident that because um, Jesus is our great intercessor, Jesus has been compared to Moses, remember. Moses was the intercessor for the people so that God could be with those people, his presence could be there. So too we can have certainty that God's presence is with us because Jesus is interceding on our behalf to the Father so that God's gracious presence is with us. But that's where the comparison ends. The author to the Hebrews is at pains to point out that Jesus is not just another Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. And in this case, we've got Moses being able to deliver people into the promised land of Canaan, which is an earthly home. But Jesus is far greater than that because he is able to deliver us not into an earthly home, but he is able to deliver us into a heavenly home, which is eternal. Jesus is greater than Moses because what Jesus does lasts forever. Jesus is eternal. And the writer to the Hebrews says, press on, keep going, because if we forsake Jesus, we no longer have an intercessor before God. If we forsake Jesus, we might find comfort here and now in earthly homes, but we won't find the comfort of our heavenly home for all eternity. The writer to the Hebrews is essentially saying this. 
If we fall back, we have everything to lose. But if we press on, if we fix our thoughts on Jesus and press on, knowing that we have a higher calling, knowing that we have a heavenly calling, then we have everything to gain. We're not there yet. We're still on this journey heading towards heaven. And we can't stop and think that what we have now is everything there is. So the author to the Hebrews is saying, don't be disheartened, don't give up. The, um, so we've dealt with the high priest. Jesus represents us to God and our petitions are heard because of who Jesus is, not because of anything that we've done. But we haven't dealt with this term apostle. And it's actually the only time in the New Testament that the word apostle, um, apostolos or apostello in the Greek, is, um, is used for Jesus. Now, it means sent, and so Moses was someone who was sent with a message from God, wasn't he? He was God's messenger. And when he was sent, he sort of delivered the law to the people. That's what he brought through to the people. But when Jesus comes, he is far greater than Moses because he doesn't just have a message, Jesus is the message. Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus is God. And the writer of the Hebrews is at pains to point this out. And um, this is sometimes a little bit hard to read, but if we break it down, we can uh, start to understand it. It says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. What it's initially saying to us is that uh, Jesus is the builder of the house and then it goes on to say that God is the builder of everything. If Jesus is the builder of the house and God is the builder of everything, then Jesus is God. Now, when it introduces this idea of a house, I don't know what you're thinking about. Maybe you're thinking about your own house. Um, Maybe you're thinking about other houses. Perhaps you're casting your mind back and saying, this is a couple of generations after Jesus. Uh, Maybe the house is sort of a Greco-Roman house. And if you remember um, a sermon many months ago now, when we're talking about the Lord's Supper, you might remember when we're talking about the triclinium and the atrium. Oh, where are they? Where, last time I went to the Telford's house, I seem to remember being out in the atrium and it was all raining out there. They've got wonderful hospitality though. The, the house that's being talked about here is not actually a physical house at all. The house that's being talked about here is the household of Israel. And when the Hebrews heard about the house, um, the word house, they would have been thinking not only the household of Israel, not only the nation of Israel, but they would have understood that this household of Israel has a certain purpose. And that purpose is that the nation of Israel was chosen by God to proclaim the name of God through to the nations. And we read that all throughout Scripture. And we know that Moses knew that, didn't, don't we? Because we've already seen today that the basis of his appeal to God for the presence of God to be amongst the peoples was so that the nations would know that he is God. But what happens when you've got a servant in the household, which is Moses, and then along comes someone who is the owner and the builder of the house? 
And this is where Jesus and Moses are being compared. Moses is a servant in the house. He instituted the law. But now Jesus comes along and he is the builder of the house. What happens when the builder comes back? What happens when the one who sets the foundations and puts everything in order in the house comes back? And to understand it, I wonder if we actually cast our minds back to the week in politics and what's happened in politics during the week. We, uh, we don't have a new government, but we've got a new Prime Minister. And as you listen to people around the country, one of the things that they're saying is, we need an election soon. We need an election because this government has no longer got legitimacy. Well, they, they sort of do. It depends how you understand our system. They are allowed to change Prime Minister like that, of course. But the people are saying they want an election so there, there is legitimacy. And in... Uh, the near term, we don't know how long it is, but sooner rather than later there will be an election. When an election is called, the government is still the government. They're called the caretaker government. They can't make massive decisions about how Australia is running or anything like that, but they keep the cogs ticking over whilst the election uh, is happening and then once the election has been decided and a new government comes in, or the existing government, but a new government is there, then suddenly they can start to do things, can't they? They can start to change things. They're no longer a caretaker government. They're a government who has legitimacy and can start to do things. And I think it's a little bit like um, Moses and then Jesus. See, Moses is sort of in caretaker mode. He's keeping the wheels, t um, the wheels moving, the cogs ticking over, until Jesus comes back. And what these people are doing are they're going back to, the Hebrew people are going back um, to Moses rather than fixing their eyes on Jesus. When Jesus comes back, he does things differently. He doesn't just keep the same order that Moses had in the household. And I like to think of it like this, a construction site. When Jesus comes back, he suddenly drastically changes or um, expands the purpose of Israel. Now the nation of Israel includes us, it includes Gentiles, and they're brought into this. And if they're brought into this, then this household of God feels like a construction site. And sometimes our lives, as part of this household of Israel, feel like a construction site. Your life might feel like a construction site, when your health is causing you problems and you're learning that you've got to trust in Jesus rather than your own fitness. Your life might feel like a construction site when you just can't see around the next corner of your life because of all the uncertainty that exists in your present circumstances. Your life might feel like a construction site when you start to break down preconceived ideas about your ideal life when you start to see that the plan and the purpose that God has for your life is not your own, but it is his plan and purpose. And your life is a construction site when you start to see how your life fits into the full plan and purpose of God in all of history. The reason that we, our lives feel like a construction site is because we're not there yet. We have not arrived at heaven yet. Our life is still a construction site while God does this work in us. 
And it's at this point that we attempted, though, to slip back into old ways. If our life is uncomfortable when we've been following Jesus, we want to sometimes just get to back to what is comfortable. And the context of Hebrews might help us to understand this a little bit. You see, one of the reasons that the Hebrews were slipping back into old ways is because they were no longer comfortable. You see, when they were just Jews and not Christians, they had relative freedom in the Greco-Roman world. They were accepted for who they were. They had um, territories or regions in which they could live. They had a king that was um, sort of appointed to rule over them. Life was pretty good, it would seem, for these Hebrews. But once this Jesus fella comes along, well, things aren't so easy anymore. You see, Jesus is saying that he is the king and suddenly these people aren't um, paying their allegiances to Caesar as much anymore. When this Jesus fellow comes along, no one knows how how to deal with it. So these Hebrews that are following Jesus start to feel persecuted. Their property becomes looted. They're open to public abuse. Some of them are even imprisoned for what they're believing. Their life is feeling like a construction site and they just want to run away from that construction site and get back to the comfortable. It's not directly in the text, but I sort of feel, as I, I get the impression, I guess, as I read through Hebrews, that people might have lacked a personal relationship with Jesus. There's sort of the suggestion that their relationship with Jesus is more of an association with God rather than a direct personal relationship. In the Baptist church and other evangelical churches, there is a great emphasis on having a personal relationship with Jesus. There is no, um, you might have heard the term, there's no grandchildren of God. And what that means is you don't know God through your parents, okay? You need to be able to come to know um, Jesus personally yourself. You can't know God through um, uh, friends or other relatives. Each of us should be coming to have this personal relationship with God ourselves. But if these Hebrews didn't have this personal relationship, then I guess they might be thinking, what is there to lose if I fall away from Jesus and just go back into the ways of, of Judaism? And the writer to the Hebrews says, you have everything to lose if you fall back to old ways and everything to gain if you press on following Jesus. But what does this all mean for us? You know, as far as I know, there's no one in here that, uh, uh, there's no one that's got Jewish heritage, there might be. But even if you did have Jewish heritage, you're probably not inclined to go back to doing things the sacrificial way or anything like that. I suspect that the Hebrews um, weren't inclined to do that anyway because if this was written after 70 AD, then the temple is destroyed, so they can't go back to worshipping at the temple. If it was written before 70 AD, there's a dispersion of them amongst the Greco-Roman world anyway and these people as um, Hebrews that are Greek-speaking, it's very unlikely that they're in Jerusalem anyway. So they can't just sort of go back to the temple. But it doesn't mean that we don't slip back into our comfort zones. To cope with the stresses of our lives, instead of fixing our eyes on Jesus, we simply slide away and drift thoughtlessly back into the comfortableness of life. We might remind ourselves of the days gone by when things were easier, 
when we didn't face the ridicule of being a serious Christian. Perhaps you slip back in your witness to the truth. Now, in recent times in our society, the easiest way to slip back would be in our speaking of the truth of how God defines marriage. The ridicule that Christians face when they speak about marriage being between a man and a woman is sometimes hard to bear. It would be easy to slip back to old ways and disassociate ourselves from the biblical view of truth. Or perhaps when your life is a construction site, you slip back into unhelpful habits. Christians aren't free from unhelpful habits. You might turn to food, drink, even pornography when times get tough. You tell yourself that it's okay. Perhaps you think it's just a way of unwinding what everyone else does. It cannot be harmful, can it? But what you don't realise in slipping back into the old ways is that there is wind in your sails that is blowing you further from the shore. You might remember Cam said a few weeks ago, drifting is always a way. Or perhaps money making is your thing. With money you have the comfort and security that you've always wanted in your life. It's what everyone else is doing, spending their time setting themselves up for the future. I'll spend more time with Jesus once I've got my finances in order, you tell yourself. I need the money in order to live in this world. Jesus doesn't want me stopping, uh, to stop providing for my family, does he? But you don't realise that the wind in your sails is blowing you further from the shore. Drifting is always a way. Or perhaps for you, the social element of life is your default setting. It's what you slip back into. You, uh, you want your friends again and you're cutting yourself off from them because they see uh, Christianity as prohibitive. You need to spend more time with non-Christian friends anyway, don't you? Jesus would want that, even if you do have to give in a little to their way of doing things. You might have to compromise in order to win them over for Jesus. But in your compromise, you aren't sharing Jesus with them at all. You don't realise it, but the wind in your sails is blowing you further from shore. Drifting is always a way. And it is to this that Jesus says, you are so nearsighted you are almost blind. Have you forgotten what is on the line? Have you not realised the hope of salvation to come? Have you not realised that heaven is a high calling and God has chosen you for that? He has chosen you to enter the eternal promised rest. He has chosen you for the comfort he has not chosen you, sorry, for the comfortable here and now. We must rehear that. He doesn't call us to a life of comfort here. He calls us to a life of eternal rest to come. Our rest now is only because of the life that come breaks into the presence. Now Ian spoke last week on um, knowing the Sabbath rest here and now. And that is absolutely true, but your life can be a construction site and you can still experience the eternal rest. The eternal rest is the hope of the future that breaks into the presence now. It's not as if our life is not a construction site now. God doesn't make our life so that we'll just get, it, get through it easily. He doesn't want you to fall back into your default position of comfort He wants you to get through your life with your eyes fixed on him. He wants you to get through life having a personal relationship with him. He wants you to get through life knowing that the power to get 
you through, all that life throws at you in this construction site is in him. Christianity might not be the easiest path, but you sure know you're alive if you're following Jesus. By following Jesus, we have everything to gain and we have everything to lose if we don't. Um, We began with this picture and we said that there was a lot about it that is wrong and there's um, just the aspect of you're on a journey, you're not there yet that we want to focus on. Um, Hopefully um, it sort of looks like it's just starting to get into autumn but our life doesn't feel like it's just getting into a nice autumn all the time. Our life might feel a little bit more like this. It might feel like a construction site. I actually don't mind uh, uh, an image that um, I think Andrew Potts chose that we've got in the background to this series because it sort of shows our heavenly calling and what we're heading for as the sun in the background. But it shows, um, I guess, hills and things. We've got challenges and things to conquer um, as we go through our life. So I don't mind that image um, either. But whether you think of life as a construction site or whether you think of it more like this... Whatever the image you have, let us press on towards the goal because the author to the the Hebrews says we have everything to gain if we press on to Jesus and everything to lose if we don't. Let us pray. Gracious Father, you've um, taught us about this plan that you have for Israel to bear um, God's name and to carry God's name through to the ends of the earth. When our life is a construction site, we sometimes don't realise this full plan that you have for us. But help us, Lord, to see how our lives fit into this great plan that you have for all of humanity. Help us to not give up on you when our life does feel like a a construction site. Help us not to fall back into old habits, to fall back into old ways where life was just comfortable. But help us, Lord, to press on towards the goal, to fix our thoughts and attention on Jesus, who is the author of our faith, and that we may know his presence wherever we go. Through Christ we pray. Amen.